0: Welcome to Darkgate Horror Podcast episode number 18. In this episode, we'll discuss the concept of a building having a conscious will or soul as it were, an idea explored in Stephen King's The Shining, Edgar Allan Poe's story The Fall of the House of Usher, and Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. I'm sorry for the delay in getting this episode out to you. I had it just about finished, but my dad died a few weeks ago. So I had my trip back to Wisconsin for the funeral and to be with my family. And since then, I just haven't felt like working on podcasts. It's been a really rough time these last few weeks. But it's a new year and a chance at a fresh start. So hopefully I'll be able to produce a bit more often um, when I'm feeling up to it. But let's start with some news. Sweeney Todd opened December 21st, 2007. The Stephen Sondheim musical thriller revolves around Benjamin Barker, alias Sweeney Todd, who returns to London after being deported to find out what happened to his wife and child at the hands of Judge Turpin. When he learns of their terrible fate, he joins forces with Mrs. Nellie Lovett, the baker downstairs from his barbershop, and sets out to seek revenge. It's directed by Tim Burton and stars Johnny Depp, Sasha Baron Cohen, Helena Bonham Carter, and Alan Rickman. If you've not had a chance to see this, go see it. It's one of the best films of 2007, and not only is it by blood-loving Tim Burton, but it is extremely funny in a very, very dark way. I cannot wait to see this one again when it comes out to DVD, and I recommend you go see it. But let's move on to the main topic. Have you ever walked into a building and felt an odd sensation? Like you were being watched, or that you had a good or bad feeling about somewhere? Mediums often describe some of the most haunted places in these terms. I believe that people imprint part of themselves onto items, and buildings are absolutely no exception. Trauma in a place clings to the walls, to the floor, the air, it's all around. Next time you enter an old building, take notice of the feelings and impressions about the place. Look around, pay attention to your thoughts. Some places have had more than their share of bad incidences, and the three stories to be discussed in this podcast all fit this criteria. I'm not speaking so much about ghosts and hauntings than I am of houses and buildings having a soul, a collective consciousness. And as usual, I'll be discussing everything about the works, so this is a spoiler alert. Let's start with The Shining by Stephen King from 1980. I'll be discussing this phenomenal work in other podcasts, but in this episode I'll focus on the hotel and the interaction of the hotel with the family. Furthermore, I'll be primarily discussing the novel and not the film or the miniseries adaptions. Frank Torrance is a temperamental writer who is trying to rebuild his and his family's lives after alcohol problems and violent temper and they cause him to lose his teaching position at a New England prep school. Having given up drinking, he accepts a job as a winter caretaker at a large, isolated Colorado resort hotel that has a gory history. Hoping to prove that he has recovered from his alcoholism and is now a responsible person, Jack moves into the Overlook Hotel with his wife Wendy and young son Danny, who is telepathic and sensitive to supernatural forces. Sending telepathic messages is referred to as shining. The hotel is both a personality in its own right and a kind of psychic lens. It manipulates both the living and the dead for its own purposes. It also magnifies the psychic powers of any living people who reside there, giving them the power to resist its will. Danny, who has the premonitions of the hotel's danger to his family, begins seeing ghosts and frightening visions from the hotel's past, and puts up with them in the hope that they are not dangerous in the present. He doesn't tell his parents about his visions because he senses how important the job of caretaker is to his father and his family's future. Having difficulty possessing Danny, the hotel begins to possess Jack, frustrating his need and desire to work. As he becomes increasingly unstable, the sinister ghost of the hotel gradually begins to overtake him. Eventually, Jack becomes possessed by the hotel, which attempts to use him to kill Danny and Wendy in order to absorb Danny's psychic powers. Wendy and Danny manage to get the better of Jack, locking him into the walk-in pantry, but the ghost of Delbert Grady, one of the Overlook's former caretakers who just happened to murder his whole family and commit suicide, releases him. By this time, Wendy has discovered that they are completely isolated, isolated in the overlook. Jack destroyed the hotel's only snowmobile. An ugly battle occurs between Jack and the hotel as one, and Wendy. Jack, slash the hotel, using one of the hotel's rogue mallets, manages to break three of Wendy's ribs, break her kneecap, and shatter her vertebrae, while she stabs him in the small of his back with a large butcher knife. Though incredible strength and spirit, Wendy escapes, half running, half crawling into the caretaker's suite and locks herself in the bathroom, Jack in pursuit. By this point, Dick Halloran, a member of the hotel staff who's also telepathic with The Shining and whom Danny has summoned to the hotel through the use of The Shining, has come all the way to the Overlook to investigate. Jack leaves Wendy in the bathroom and attempts to kill Halloran, shattering his jaw and giving him a concussion with the rogue mallet. Jack then pursues Danny, but Danny escapes by reminding Jack that the unstable boiler in the basement is about to burst and destroy the hotel. Jack rushes to the basement while Danny, Wendy, and Halloran flee the hotels as it explodes. The novel ends with Danny and Wendy summering at a resort in Maine where Dick is the head chef. So this novel presents two corollary and archetypal premises. A. The concentration of evil's power in what, presumably not requiring a more precise term, is most frequently referred to as simply as a bad place. And B, the ability of evil to act and sustain itself only through the subjugation and ultimate absorption of human subjects. The Magnificent Overlook Hotel, primary setting of The Shining, is the primeval bad place in the novel's action. The Overlook was built by a man named Robert Townley Watson between the years of 1907 and 1909, During the construction, an ancient Indian burial ground was discovered on the site, and a number of human remains were unearthed and removed to another location. Following this, a number of mysterious deaths were involved in the building of the hotel, inspiring local tales of vengeful Indian spirits full of anger due to the disturbance of the resting bodies. The Overlook Hotel was finally completed in 1909 and first opened to the public in 1910. Despite the strange, untimely deaths surrounding it and the eerie tales, the hotel itself was an attractive, elegant, and spacious hotel, With panoramic views of the mountains and proved immensely popular, receiving more visitors than expected. The Overlook Hotel is not only haunted by the ghosts of those who died violently within it, but the entire hotel itself is host to a being of unknown origin. Apparently, the souls and perhaps special abilities of those killed in the building, along with the entity. Possibly, the hotel believes that it can harness sufficient supernatural power and it can break free of the building in which it has somehow become trapped. Jack's descent, of course, probably could not have occurred as quickly outside the isolation of the Overlook Hotel itself. Much like the setting in Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Fall of the House of Usher, the Overlook assumed a life of its own. From its very beginning, it seems that those who built the Overlook blindly breached the boundaries between the sacred and profane, and in doing so, expressed a cultural value that the Torrances came to embody themselves. So let's move on to The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe from 1839. The story begins with one of Poe's most famous descriptions. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, the narrator is describing his arrival on horseback at Roderick Usher's isolated abode one dreary evening. Immediately, he feels an irrational fear upon viewing the huge, decrepit house. Poe describes it as, With the first glimpse of the building, a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I looked upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, with an utter depression of soul that I can compare to no early sensation, more properly than to the after-dream of the reveler upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil." The narrator goes on to say no portion of the masonry had fallen, and there appeared to be a wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. In this there was much that reminded me of the spacious totality of old woodwork which has rotted for long years in in some neglected vault, with no disturbance from the breath of the external air. Beyond this indication of extreme decay, however, the fabric gave little token of instability, Perhaps the eye of the scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure, which, extending from the roof of the building in front, made its way down the all in a zigzag direction until it became lost in the sullen waters of the tarn. We learn that the narrator and Usher were childhood friends. Recently, the narrator received a letter from Usher. In the letter, Roderick described a certain mental disorder that was plaguing him, and he communicated a desperate desire to see his old companion— Due to the urgent tone of the letter, the narrator never thought twice. Without hesitation, he obeyed this very singular summons. Usher, the narrator informs us, is now the only male descendant of the line and lives with his sister, Madeline. He tells the narrator of his illness, which is a nervous affection, which has resulted in a few bizarre symptoms. For one, Usher's senses now seem incredibly acute. All in all, the man seems overwhelmed by his malady obsessed with the idea of fear and he calls the source of his fear a grim phantasm the causes for his affliction are mysterious one possible factor usher mentions is the failing health of his beloved sister the narrator himself catches a glimpse of madeline passing through a hall she is bound to die we learn and the notion of being the last of the ancient race of the ushers fills roderick with dread and sorrow Roderick stated that he was enchained by certain superstitious impressions in regard to the dwelling which he tenanted, and whence for many years he had never ventured forth in regard to an influence which some peculiarities in the mere form and substance of his family mansion had, by dint of long sufferance, he said, obtained over his spirit. An effect which the physique of the grey walls and turrets, and of the dim darn into which they all looked down, had, at length, brought about upon the morale of existence. Roderick Usher is convinced that the inanimate universe is full of sentience, that seemingly dead objects or matter, such as the atmosphere he describes encircling his home, are endowed with senses and perhaps even life of their own. He pours over books in his vast library, speaks of a living atmosphere upon the waters and walls of the house. When Poe introduces this concept, it seems almost a digression. The principal arc of the narrative has been Usher's madness, his fear of what he regards as his own inevitable doom. Rather than a window into his tortured psyche, as provided by the bizarre painting of the vault or the improvised song of the haunted palace, the intellectual pursuit of sentience seems a projection into the outer world, as though Usher is trying to occupy his mind with something other than himself. And then Madeline dies, and he decides to preserve her corpse for a fortnight in one of the building's vaults. It seems a reasonable precaution given how far away the family burial grounds are, so the narrator accepts the idea and in the days that follow, the narrator notes the increasingly madness of Usher. What frightens the narrator even more is that he is too beginning to feel infected by Usher's condition. The narrator describes feelings of alarm which he has without any particular cause, perhaps thus indicating that the house may in fact be having some effect on him. One night when a storm rages outside and the narrator is too terrified to sleep, he and Usher sit together in a bedroom and read from The Mad Tryst by Sir Lancelot Canning. He believes that he's hearing the same kind of noise described in the book at the same time it's happening. Trying to calm himself down, the narrator continues reading to his friend and in the book, the hero slays the dragon, who lets out a horrible shriek. And as the narrator reads the description, he hears a most unusual screaming sound. Terrified, he looks to Usher, who has now positioned his chair to face the door of the room, and rocks from side to side while murmuring to himself. The sounds continue as if someone or something is acting out the book for the two friends. Finally, Usher addresses the narrator. We have put her living in the tomb. Usher shrieks. Madman, I tell you, she now stands without the door as if on command, the doors to the chamber spring open, and due to the storm, the narrator explains, and there stands Madeline, her white robe stained with blood, and with a low moaning cry, she attacks her brother, instantly killing him. At this point, the narrator flees the house, and in my favorite passage of the story, the narrator describes a full setting and blood-red moon which now shone vividly through the once barely discernible fissure Of which I have before spoken, as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base. While I gazed, this fissure rapidly widened. There came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters and the deep and dark tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. Throughout the story, Poe's imagery of the house and the inanimate objects inside serve to give a supernatural atmosphere to the story. By giving inanimate objects almost lifelike characteristics, he is giving the house a supernatural quality. This supernatural element serves to make Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher interesting and suspenseful in its treatment of the house's effect on its inhabitants. And finally, let's discuss The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson from 1959. I've seen the films The Haunting with Liam Neeson and The Haunting of Hill House with Vincent Price. Although I preferred the Price version for several reasons, neither version did a terribly good job at portraying the house properly. I did not really believe that the house was causing the problems, and not a traditional haunting. In this case, as is often the case with books translated to film, something is lost along the way. It just does not translate well, and I think it's due to the fact that a house is not a moving, breathing, or interacting character. Without being really cheesy, it's nearly impossible to portray a house as having a consciousness on film. Nevertheless, the actors did a fairly good job in both adaptations, improving reactions, which helped the audience to believe that the house was scary. However, what I'll be discussing here is the novel, which I have recently read and not the film adaptations. The story revolves around five main characters, including Dr. John Montague, the young heir to Hill House, and two young women. The fifth character is Hill House itself. Hidden away in the countryside among the foreboding hills that give it its name, Hill House is an ugly and malevolent eighty year old mansion built by an eccentric patriarch named Hugh Crane. As the narrative describes it, this house, which seems somehow to have formed itself, flying together into its own powerful pattern under the hands of the builders, Fitting itself into its own construction of lines and angles, reared its great head back against the sky without concession to humanity. It was a house without kindness, never meant to be lived in, not a fit place for people or for love or for hope. Exorcism cannot alter the continence of the house. Hill House would stay as it was until it was destroyed. Dr. Montague, hoping to prove scientifically the existence of the supernatural, rents Hill House for the summer and invites a number of individuals to stay there as his guests. Of these invitees, whom he has chosen because at one point or another they have all experienced paranormal events, only two, Eleanor and Theodora, except The story follows Eleanor as she travels to the house where she and Theodora will live in isolation with Montague and Luke Sanderson, with the exception of two caretakers, the odious Mr. and Mrs. Dudley, who refuse to stay near Hill House at night. Set against the dramatic, isolated background of Hill House, with its crazily disoriented construction, the four begin to form friendships as Dr. Montague explains the building's unsavory history, which encompasses madness, suicide, and other violent deaths. Our highly introspective, meek lead character is Eleanor, who resents having lived as a recluse who dutifully cared for her smothering invalid mother. Gradually, though, this unusual experiment, she begins to venture forth from Rochelle after meeting Theodora, the only other female character for much of the story, who befriends her in an older sister kind of way. Theodora is the equal opposite to Eleanor, a sharp, complex, closed-off character. The center of attention, however, both that of the narrative and of Hill House, is Eleanor. All four of the inhabitants begin to experience terrifying supernatural events while in the house, including intense cold, otherworldly sounds, seen and unseen spirits roaming the halls at night, blood splattered on walls and among clothes. Eleanor, being most sensitive or attuned to the house's disturbed soul, tends to experience things in which the others are oblivious. In a regular life, she is an outcast even among her own family, whom she hates. Yet this house seems to be reaching out to her as an unbalanced soulmate, and she's all too happy to play with the willing partner. At first, this terrifies her. But as time passes, she finds that the new sense of being wanted, which she has never felt before, is strangely powerful and attractive. And at the same time, Eleanor might be losing touch with reality, and Jack's ambiguous narrative raises the possibility that at least some of the things that Eleanor witnesses are merely products of her imagination. In short, Eleanor may or may not be going insane. If so, it may or may not be due to Hill House's influence. In addition to these ambiguities, many of the other hauntings that occur throughout the book are only vaguely described, or else are partly hidden from the characters themselves. They might be in a bedroom with an unseen force trying the door, where Eleanor may realize after the fact that she was holding a hand in the darkness that was not Theodora's. In one episode, as Theodora and Eleanor walk outside Hill House at night, Theodora looks behind them and screams in fear for Eleanor to run. We, and perhaps the other characters, never learn what Theodora saw. This veiled use of the supernatural is intended to work on the reader's imagination and heighten the sense of terror. In the latter part of the book, Jackson introduces some comedic relief in the persons of Mrs. Montague and her companion, Arthur Parker, the headmaster of a boys' school who arrived to spend a weekend at Hill House. While they too are interested in the supernatural, they are more drawn to conventional trappings such as seances and spirit writing, which come across as quackery. The irony here is that, unlike the other four characters, they experience nothing supernatural at all, although the house makes them use some of Mrs. Montague's spirit writings to communicate with Eleanor. But by this point in the book, it's becoming clear to everyone that the house is beginning to possess Eleanor in some fashion. In fear for her safety, Dr. Montague declares that she must leave. By now, under Hill House's spell and happy for the first time in her life, Eleanor resists. The others practically have to force her into her car, but then she kills herself in order to defy them all and stay at the house she now regards as being her home. Eleanor's final thoughts brilliantly illustrate just how far she has fallen under Hillhouse's spell, with her appearing to wake up when it's much too late. "'I am really doing it,' she thought, turning the wheel to send the car directly at the great tree at the curve of the driveway." I am really doing it, and then later, in an unending, crashing sound before the car hurled into the tree, she clearly thought, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why don't they stop me? It is clear to me after looking at all three of these stories that the possessed people all share some similar characteristics, primarily wanting to be accepted and loved, Each has their own share of a traveled background, and the elements of the bad place clearly superimpose upon their own fractured psyche in order for the building to take its toll on the characters. To me, it's interesting to compare the three buildings, which are all described as huge buildings with sword paths and dark descriptions, and that each can have such an effect in such a short period of time. The possession can only work when looked at in comparison with stronger, resistant characters. The buildings must either be destroyed or abandoned for their powers to weaken on the affected individual. My favorite of three has always been the fall of the House of Usher. I don't know how many times I've read it. Poe's prose is beautiful and very suspenseful until the shocking climax and resolution. That's why he's my favorite author of all time. King has stated that Jackson and Poe are big influences to him. And when comparing the basic elements of these stories, it's obvious that that's true. All three works are exceptional, each in their own way, and are prime examples of buildings having a conscious soul. Let's move on to the song of the night. It's I'll Pretend by Arthur Yoria from Magnatune.com. Enjoy! For this episode, I hope you liked this one. Greg, who works with me on Supernatural Podcasts, requested a podcast dealing with possession. So here you are. Thanks for the suggestions, Greg. If you have any topic requests or comments, please email me at darkgatehorror@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The next episode will discuss the second director in our series, and one of my personal favorites, Alfred Hitchcock. Thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to Darkgate Horror Podcast. You can send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. His website is joshwoodward.com. Music played on this podcast is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.